read in the book of Acts, chapter 20, <coughs> excuse me, at verse 17. So Acts 20, and beginning at verse 17, again, Mr. Bonner, gracious Bonner, is really referring to men, the Acts, the Apostles records, the Apostles and their helpers like Barnabas and others, and the laborers, the kind of laborers they were, the kind of ministers they were, and he's titled his little piece here, Revival, or I should say the men God uses in revival. So let's read here. This is Luke's account of Paul at Miletus. And uh, we'll see here what he says and does. So Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. When they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept nothing back that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Amen. And the reading of God's word there at the 27th verse. You notice Paul's ministry, not only his doctrine, he says clearly that he showed them and kept nothing back that was profitable unto them, both publicly and privately. And his doctrine was particularly repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. But he also was there with humility of mind and tears and temptations, trials. The Jews were against him. He knew that in his continuing ministry he was going 
to find more of the same, more troubles, more bonds and afflictions await him. But he did not regard them. He could, you could say he despised them because he wanted to finish his course with joy and the ministry which he received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And he says again to the Ephesians that he was without blame because he declared the whole or all the counsel of God to them. He did not shun, he did not spare them. This is the kind of ministry Paul had, and we assume and know from other things that all the apostles were in this group, this category. So let us continue then with Mr. Bonner having these things in mind. Again, he doesn't refer particularly to too many individuals and texts, but he's, as he said there in the beginning, he's asking us to consider what type of men were the apostles, what kind of preachers, what kind of ministers. What kind of men were they that moved the world, as it says in Acts, and turned it upside down? So, we left off there with the thought that they were men whose doctrines were of the most decided kind, both as respects law and gospel. Then we come to this one, the next little thought. They were men of solemn deportment and deep spirituality of soul. Their lives and their lips accorded with each other. Their daily walk furnished the best attestation and illustration of the truth they preached. They were always ministers of Christ, wherever they were to be found or seen. No frivolity, no worldly companionships neutralized their public preaching or marred the work they were seeking to accomplish. The world could not point to them as being but slightly dissimilar from itself, or as men who, through though faithful in the pulpit, forgot throughout the week their character, their office, their errand. Luther once remarked regarding a beloved and much admired friend, He lives what we preach. So it was with these much-honored men whose names are in the book of life. We quote the following account of Gilbert Tennant's life and doctrine from the pen of Thomas Prince. It will illustrate some remarks under the former head. From the terrible and deep convictions he had passed through in his own soul, he seemed to have such a lively view of the divine majesty, the spirituality, purity, extensiveness and strictness of His law, with His glorious holiness and displeasure at sin, His justice, truth, and power in punishing the damned, that the very terrors of God seemed to rise in His mind afresh when He displayed and brandished them in the eyes of unreconciled sinners. Though some could not bear the representation and avoided His preaching, yet the arrows of conviction by his ministry seemed so deeply to pierce the hearts of others, even some of the most stubborn sinners, 
as to make them fall down at the feet of Christ and yield a lowly submission to Him. Such were the convictions wrought in many hundreds in this town by Mr. Tennant's searching ministry. And such was the case of those many scores of several other congregations as well as mine who came to me and others for direction under them. Indeed, by all their converse, I found it was not so much the terror as the searching nature of his ministry that was the principal means of their conviction. I found not merely, nor so much his laying open the terrors of the law and wrath of God, or damnation of hell, for this they could pretty well bear, as long as they hoped these belonged not to them, or they could easily avoid them, as his laying open their many vain and secret shifts, or schemes or methods, and refuges, counterfeit resemblances of grace, delusive and damning hopes, their utter impotence and impending danger of destruction, whereby they found all their hopes and refuges of lies, refuges of lies to fail them, and themselves exposed to eternal ruin, unable to help themselves in a lost condition. The searching preaching was both the suitable and principal means of their conviction. And now was such a time as we never knew. More came to one minister in one week and deep concerned about their souls than in the whole 24 years of his preceding ministry. <coughs> he goes on, Mr. Bonner does. He says, as an illustration of how remarkably the work of, was of God and not of man, we quote without comment the following passages from quote, a narrative of Surprising Conversions by Jonathan Edwards. It is observable how, at this remarkable day, a spirit of deep concern would seize upon persons. Some were in the house, some walking in the highway, some in the woods, and some in the field, some in conversation, and some in retirement, some children, some adults, some elderly persons, but sometimes of a sudden, be brought under the strongest impressions from a sense of the great realities of the other world and eternal things. But such things, as far as I can learn, were usually, if not always, impressed upon men while they were in some way exercising their minds upon the word of God or spiritual objects. For the most part, it has been under the public preaching of the word that these lasting impressions have been fastened upon them. A great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world became universal in all parts of the town. And among persons of all degrees and ages, the noise among the dry bones waxed louder and louder. Ezekiel 34, or 30, excuse me, 37, 4. All other talk but about spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by. The minds of the people were wonderfully taken off the world. It was treated among us as a thing of very little consequence. They seemed to follow their worldly business more as a part of their duty than from any disposition they had to it. The only thing in their view was to get to the kingdom of heaven, and everyone appeared to be pressing into it. The engagedness, or the consideration, the earnest consideration, of their hearts in this great concern could not be hid. It appeared in their very countenances. 
It was then a dreadful thing amongst us to lie out of Christ. It means to be outside of Christ, not to lie in a falsehood. In danger every day of dropping into hell. And what persons' minds were intent upon was to escape for their lives, to fly from the wrath to come, as Luke 3, 7. All would eagerly lay hold of opportunities for their souls and were wont very often to meet together in private houses for religious purposes. And such meetings, when appointed, were greatly thronged. There was scarcely a single person in the town, young or old, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Those who were wont to be the vainest and loosest, those who had been most disposed to think and speak slightly of vital, that means living, and experimental religion, were now generally subject to great awakenings. The work of conversion was carried on in a most astonishing manner and increased more and more. Souls did, as it were, come by flocks to Jesus Christ. From day to day, for many months together, might be seen evident instances of sinners brought out of darkness into marvelous light. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service, everyone earnest, intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general was, from time to time, in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love. Others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Those amongst us that had formerly been converted were greatly enlivened and renewed with fresh and extraordinary income to the Spirit of God. Though some much more than others, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Many who had before labored under difficulties about their own state had now their doubts removed by the more satisfying experience and more clear discoveries of God's love. When a man proceeds to the accomplishment of some mighty enterprise, he puts forth prodigious efforts. That's great efforts, or large efforts. As if by the sound of his axes and hammers he would proclaim his own fancied might and bear down opposing obstacles. He cannot work without sweat, dust, and noise. When God would do a marvelous work, such as may amaze all heaven and earth, he commands silence all about, all around, sends forth the still, small voice, and then sets some feeble instrument to work, and straightway it is done. Man toils and pants, and after all effects, but little. The Creator, in the silent majesty of power, noiseless yet resistless, achieves by a word of the infinite wonders of omnipotence. In order to loose the bands of the winter, and bring in the verdure of the pleasant spring, he does not send forth his angels to hew in pieces the thickened ice, or to strip off from the mountainside the gathered snows, or to plant anew over the face of the bleak earth flowers fresh from his creating hand. No. He breathes from his lips a mild warmth into the frozen air. And forthwith, in stillness, but in irresistible power, the work proceeds. The ice is shivered. The snows dissolve. The rivers resume their flow. The earth awakes out as out of sleep. 
The hills and the valleys put on their freshening verdure. The fragrance of earth takes wing and fills the air until a new world of beauty arises in silence amid the disillusion of the old. Such is God's method of working, both in the natural and the spiritual world. Silent, simple, majestic, resistless. Such was the Reformation. Such were the revivals in Scotland under our fathers of the covenant. Such was the Kirk O'Shots, the memorable Pentecost, when the unstudied words of a timid, trembling youth carried salvation to five hundred souls. Such was in ire in its Pentecostal days, when from the lonely church at midnight there went up to heaven the broken sighs of that man of prayer, John Welsh, since 1560s. To 1622. And such was Northampton in the later times when Jonathan Edwards watched and prayed for its citizens. When from the closet of that holy man there went forth the living power that wrought such wonders there. Is the Lord's hand shortened that he cannot save? Or is ear heavy that it cannot hear? Isaiah 59.1 End of his article. Again, these are great lessons or great things that has happened in the history of the church since Pentecost. The preacher that preached at Kirk of Schatz was uh, John Livingston. And uh, it is an interesting story how the Lord used the young man there as it says here to bring Salvation to hundreds, and I think it is, as it says here, 500 or so. Again, showing it is God that does it. The day of Pentecost was 3,000 in one sermon. It wasn't Peter's greatness. It wasn't his rhetoric. But it was the Spirit of God in the heart of men. Well, amen.